I'm so grateful that Dr. Suzanne Wigington, PhD, could take the time to share her valuable insights into children's experience of separation and how we as parents, caregivers, and a community can help children to adjust to this major life transition. I found this interview informative and really powerful. I listened as Dr. Wigington explained how we can support our children during separation, how separation and divorce is a grief process not only for parents, but also their children. The way that children grieve is so different from the way adults grieve. I was surprised to hear it involves a lot of play. Dr. Wigington went through the four phases of children's adjustment to separation. She explained why you need to be careful not to mistake bad behavior for what it might actually be. That's grief. Dilemmas children face that adults don't, which reminded me of how amazing children are. How the community, friends, grandparents, other relatives can support children going through separation. And a reminder from my guests and I of why it's so important that parents take care of themselves during separation. And I'll give you a hint. It's what I call the Qantas theory of self-care. I know a lot of you are seeking a higher quality of life. And I don't know anyone who wants the quality of their life to get worse. But that can happen when you're stuck in a rocky relationship or going through a difficult separation and divorce. My name's Liz Rankin, and I've created the Separation Fix with the intention of turning you away from that mess and in the direction of a brighter future. I hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne Wigington. She has worked with children and families for more than three decades in many roles, including her work as a psychologist and a mediator. In 2017, Sue was awarded her PhD with the University of Queensland for her thesis about children's adjustment to separation, which is entitled, Two Homes That Used to Be One, What Has Grief Got to Do With It? I am so grateful that Sue could take the time to share her insights into children's experience of separation and how we, as parents, caregivers, and a community, can help children to adjust to this major life transition. Welcome today. Thank you very much, Liz. So lovely to be with you. I'm so excited um, to share um, or to have you share what you know about about this really important issue. So why don't we begin maybe with you explaining how you became involved in working with adults and children experiencing separation. Mm, thank you, Liz. Um, well, like, like many interesting beginnings, it was by accident, not by my design. I began working for a community-based organisation in early 2000s and I was employed there to work exclusively with children initially and what was coming through the door was uh, about 70 to 75 percent of separation issues for those children Um, and obviously that children's work always involved dealing with the parents I guess that was my first taste of formal separation work with children and within a couple of years from that I began training as a mediator and initially I was the um, the person on the mediation team who interviewed the children and fed back into the adult process. So, so my early 
um, career in that respect was about deciphering what was going on for children. You know, the parents couldn't understand what the children needed. Um, the professionals who were working exclusively with the adults also couldn't decipher. So I was that conduit um, between children and adults, making the bridge to say, well, actually, this is what it means in terms of developmental issues um, and in terms of understanding children's way of being in the world and children's grieving. So that was really um, the beginning for me uh, and that developed as, as my passion really for helping adults understand what they needed to do well after a separation. Um, that was really the impetus for me for moving forward into the adult-based work around separation. I think um, what's really interesting when you say there, including your work as a um I guess a child consultant within the mediation process, is it such a problem with a lot of the, or obstacle I should say, with a lot of reporting about separation is it's not the child's voice, it's what you identify in your thesis, which I'll turn to now, which is adults filtering the child's experience. So, um, and and one of the things just um touching, going to move into your thesis now, is this dilemma of separation, which is really this normalization of separation. Um, you know, in Australia, it's probably been since, you know, 1975 when the Family Law Act was introduced and we had no-fault divorce. You know, but as you write about in your thesis, because the experience has become so normalized, so commonplace, you know, we can overlook or minimize the tremendous struggle um, for adults and also for children. So I just wanted to ask you, what is the impact of this normalization of separation for children? Mm. I think it's it's really profound, Liz, and um, and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hobby horse for me, I have to say. Um, I think on the one hand, the the advantage is that um, a child is no longer now um, ostracized or or stands out in a in a very negative way as a result of this, this normalization. Um, so as a community, it is well understood, you know, that nearly one in two families will experience a separation. Little Johnny is no longer the sole child in a classroom with separated parents. So that is profoundly comforting, I think, for, for us as adults to know that our child no longer stands out in that way, in that negative way. But I, I think um, at its extreme, what that risks is that we as a community become desensitised to the actual meaning of that experience for children and more importantly what children need in terms of support okay and i guess what i what i would draw on is something that mystifies us as adults is really the way that children grieve it is it is somewhat invisible and somewhat um uh, contradictory, if you like. Children's grieving is very much behaviour-based. So we will see um, Amy acting out. We'll see Johnny reduced to tears, fighting with his siblings, 
okay? It's, um, it comes out in behaviours, naughtiness on the one, one hand and sadness-related behaviours, okay? So as adults, we, we really struggle, in, in my experience um, of working with families, we really struggle to look underneath that behaviour and interpret that as grieving because that is not how we as adults grieve. As adults, we have words. I say to you, gosh, Liz, I'm really not travelling well. I'm struggling to get out of bed. Children don't say that. Children will get up and then have a fight with a sibling within three minutes of being up as they act on this internal turmoil that they are experiencing. So. We, again, we can't decipher accurately a lot of what children are doing when they are grieving. They, they will show these grieving behaviours in bursts. So that makes it a little bit more mystifying. It's not always a prolonged pattern of behaviour that they'll display. It is these tremendous bursts and then it's gone and they're back to normal behaviour. So what all this means is that us as the onlookers will say, no, they're doing fine. My children have coped perfectly with the separation. We had a couple of bad nights of sleep in the early days and now we're pretty much fine. What can happen most oftenly is, most commonly, is in the second year, these these more um, pervasive difficulties emerge. Okay, which which were indicated all along, and um, we're confused by that. We're confused, but actually, we've missed a lot of these signs that one are normal. Children grieve just like we do, but two, perhaps there was something a little bit more going on that we couldn't understand. So when we normalise all of that, Liz, and we say. Oh, little Johnny's not the only one in the class. He's got little friends there. Um, we actually misunderstand the support that children might need through this process in coming to terms with, with what's gone on, but also processing their emotions. So um, often when adults um, and psychologists and counselors talk about um, the stages of grief, they sort of draw on the original model by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, the stages of, I mean, you know, the middle repeat them, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Um, so are you saying then for a child that's a, a terribly a different model or that they, re, they use their behavior? So it's the same sort of stages, but it's expressed differently. Okay, so um, the model that I used in my thesis, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that in a moment, Liz, um, combines stages with other elements of grieving theory. And, and I guess what I'm saying to you is that what, what we look at as adults to understand how our children are feeling in the world is we look at their behaviour and because their grieving really doesn't have words until they are young teenagers, we, we are relying on what they display to us and what they display to us is mystifying, sometimes very sporadic, quite confusing 
Okay, so it's not an easy thing. Uh, it's really not an easy thing. Why don't I talk to you then about your thesis and these stages, which you know I just found so interesting. Your thesis examines this unique nature of children's adjustment to their parents' separation. And for your PhD, you know, you synthesized a massive amount of research. I think I counted like hundreds of references. And then you also conducted these very detailed interviews over a two-year period with a small sample of children ranging from seven to 13. So from these interviews and this research, the this emerged, this theory that you're talking about. So why don't we... Um, I'm just going to name these four themes of or, or stages of children adjustment. And then maybe I could ask you to talk um, briefly. I hate to say briefly because I'd love to talk about it. I mean, it's so fascinating, but I'll say briefly about these four stages. So the first is uh, the meaning of separation. The second is the theme of alone. The third is my two homes that used to be one. And the fourth is um, my new normal. And um, I have to say these themes really resonated with me in connection to my own work, my own personal experience, what I observe in children that are around me, you know, on a social basis. So um, could we, would you mind talking um, what emerged from your first theme, the meaning of separation? Mm -hmm. Certainly. And just to put it in context, sorry. Liz. Um, just to put it into context, the, the theory that I applied to my research is called the dual process model. Uh, and that was developed in 1999 by Strobe and Schutt, um, overseas researchers, very well known in the grief domain. And this, this model synthesizes um, historic models. It's got tasks and processes um, and, a, and a beautiful um, coming together of many, many aspects of what we know to be um, concrete um, and applicable grief theory. So I took this model, which had never been applied to children's experience of grieving, and I wanted to see to what extent it assisted in us understanding children's experiences. And, and that is how those themes that you've just named came about. But I wonder if I could just take a couple of moments to talk briefly about what the dual process model says about grieving, because I, um, I think it's an important context which um, would be helpful for people to, to hear about. Wonderful. Okay, so, so basically what Strobe and Schutt did as a result of many years of research with um, adults who were grieving primarily the loss of a spouse, okay, that's where their, their research base lay, and it was duplicated over many, many studies um, and led them to the development of this model. What they identify is there is there, there are basically two two areas that we move between when we grieve. Uh, on the one hand, we have a loss orientation and on the other hand, a restoration orientation. Okay, so we move between these two areas. So think of it as two spheres and we, um, as adults, we move 
at times quickly and at other times slowly between grieving in the loss orientation and moving forward, to put it quite simply, in the restoration orientation. So, um, and it, you know, it, for those who are really interested, it's worth reading about this model because it's, it's really very, um, very beautifully put. So they say that this movement between those spheres um, is something it's called oscillation. We oscillate between those areas and we do that in a self-regulatory way. So you and I, Liz, grieving, we will move differently but also in a similar pattern between those spheres. Because I'm an individual, I will have my own time and pace of grieving. But what they, what they know in bereavement research is that there are common and patterns for healthy grieving of a, um, an adult who has lost a spouse. And then they understand what the pattern over a period of time would look like for a more unhealthy pattern of grieving. Okay. And to give you a, you know, the, sh the short version of that, the unhealthy patterning is about a predominance in one or other area. Okay, so we might be stuck in grieving where we cannot move forward with the tasks beyond having lost this person in our life, okay? Or we might be completely um, taken up with moving forward and fail to actually do sufficient grieving work, okay? So there is this beautiful fluid pattern of moving backward and forward. So I took this model and applied it to my my research to see in what way did these children's experience stack up against this model, okay? Um, and so the, the development of those themes alone as the first theme very much talks about a child sitting within grief work. Before you talk about alone, would you just spend a minute on the meaning of separation, um, the theme of the meaning of separation? W would that be okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the, the, the first theme that I wrote about was the meaning of separation. And that came about um, really as, as a result of the fact that we as adults, I think, assume that children know what separation is, okay? Little Johnny, little Katie, mummy and daddy are going to separate and, and usually a family will have a little story attached to that. We're going to have two houses and everything's going to be okay. I spoke to these children who were at various stages of a separation adjustment within the first two years. They were all under two years of separation adjustment. And I asked them, what do you think separation means? And what emerged was, um, given my interest in working with children, I found, it, um, I found it captivating the way they responded to that question. So um, at times very literal, they would say it's two things, moving apart, use their fingers to indicate that to me. What seemed to emerge over time, the, these children were interviewed twice um, with a six-month period between those interviews. So they had gained a lot more experience of 
separation by the time I spoke to them the second time. And what they began to build into that understanding of separation was the nuance of and the story of why their family may have separated. Okay. So, for example, um, and I think I'm not quoting verbatim here, I'm not looking at anything to quote, Liz, but one child said um, something to the effect of, you're not as funny anymore. I don't want to. Um, I don't think I want to be with you anymore. Okay, so they were they were pulling on very um, basic understandings of what they witnessed within their parents' relationships and forming their own story of what happened. I have no doubt that that would shift and change over time, both as they gained maturity but also as they gleaned a little bit more information about relationships. Without fail, none of these children had ever been given a concrete reason in adult terms as to why the relationships had broken down. But I knew those reasons because I had interviewed the parents. And what struck me was how close these children's understandings were to the actual reasons that the parents gave me for breakdowns. And That's this is fascinating. fascinating. That's fascinating. So um, call that intuition. I don't know what causes it, but but I guess the takeaway piece is children don't really understand this word separation and it is a meaning that builds for them over time and we as parents need to assist them with, I always coach my parents, keep asking, have you got any questions? What are you, what are you thinking about how this is going for all of us? Keep the topic on the table because children need to keep inquiring. They need to keep formulating and understanding. And that is actually a very salient part of completion of grief work is to find meaning. There's a huge body of research around finding meaning out of a loss. So part of the way these children found meaning was to develop a narrative of what happened in their home. And we as parents and adults can assist with that in very positive ways, not by giving adult information, yeah. I hated her. She was a philandering bitch. But just building on the idea of why relationships might get hard and unpacking that just gradually for children. One thing I found really interesting in this um, section of your work about the meaning of separation, I don't know if it was all the children, but um, there was a strong theme that it was temporary and also dis- and, and unexpected, even though some of the children were aware that there was arguing in the house. So the, this idea of the meaning of separation being unexpected, strong idea of uh, of being temporary. I thought that was that was Absolutely. from an adult's point of view, you know, because when you finally, you know, when adults, um, my experience and with clients as well, when you finally decide to tell your children, it is definitely not going to, you know, 90% of the time, mostly it's final. Mm-hmm. You're yeah, going to this absolutely. big experience to tell your children or you're not going to put the, most children through that if it's not. So I, I thought, um, and, I th- and I think you mentioned that you thought that children may have done this as an internal coping me- mechanism. 
Absolutely, Liz, yeah. So they, um, that was part of their early understanding was that it wouldn't last, things would return to normal and this was just a temporary state, okay. What, what I understood from this part of my analysis was it was also consistent with the early shock phase in grieving, that's a that's a phase that is often um, described in different grief theories. That in the early in the early days, there is this this overwhelming sense of shock. Okay, so I my analysis was that this this was a coping mechanism within within that time of shock. Um, I know it, it's incredible, isn't it, that children would say they didn't expect it despite the fact that arguments were going on. There's another, there's another theme that I pull up in the discussion through my thesis and that is um, children's fantasy of reunion. And it, it's not—it's not something that I have developed uniquely. It has been written about by other people, um, and f and it links to children's developmental um, understanding of the world. They hold this fantasy that parents will unite, and there's actually been work done with adults whose parent whose parents separated when they were children and still as young adults that fantasy holds that they hope and wish that it, one that it had never happened but two that they will reunite so this seems to be an element as I say it's not it's not something I developed it's an element in literature that is also feeding this denial children okay this could never happen to me so at this time um, before I move on to the next stage um, the initial one the meaning of separation so what you're saying there um, for the parent how parents can help their children is putting words explaining asking them if they have any questions what other Absolutely. things can they do at this time well, if if we kind of go stepwise, Liz, I think one, it's a it's a child age appropriate explanation of separation to begin with, and then checking in regularly. Um, how are you going? Have you got any more questions? What the literature has also shown us is that children want tangible information. Will I still go to school at the same school? Will I still have my dog or will you, are you taking my dog away? Will I still see my friends? Okay, very egocentric questions, but that, that is basically primary age and still teenagers. They, that's what they want to know. Well, how is my life going to be affected? It's interesting because I did a, a wonderful, I thought it was, a um, the guest was wonderful, Dr. Rachel Sharman, and we spent some time talking about how to explain uh, separation to children. But at that time, I didn't have it in the context of this um, idea of the meaning of separation, how important it was um, in this context. So if we could then move on to the second stage um, alone. Mm -hmm. alone, would you talk a little bit about what what you um, gleaned or how you came to this this stage? Yeah. Okay, so what 
Um, what children were indicating very strongly in the in the initial phase after being told about a separation is they were they were indicating an unwillingness to kind of be normal in their world. They some of the indicators were they didn't want to tell their friends at school what had happened to them. They wanted to kind of hide away. The little girls were hoping that their friends would ask them what was wrong. Can't you see there's something wrong with me? The little boys, on the other hand, were just hoping that the, the clouds would blow over and this would all pass. It was it was quite gendered. Um, so that, that was a very strong characteristic. They also, the children talked about spending a lot of time alone, say lying on their beds, not wanting to interact with friends or siblings and not wanting to do things that were normal to them. Okay. Uh, in my analysis, I thought this aligned very, very closely with the idea of early shock. Okay, and being deeply, if we just touch into that dual process model, being very deeply within the area of grieving, the loss orientation stage. So consistent with that model that in the early time they were spending a lot of time grieving. What juxtaposed with that was their time at school when they could be much more normal. Okay, it was a welcome relief to go to school. So alone was that that deep private melancholy that if we translated that to adult terms that we would call our darkest moments after the separation, um, our loneliest times, our sense of being most isolated. Uh, what I take from that in terms of assisting parents to support their children is children didn't remember much from that time, which is consistent with early phases of grief for adults as well um, and consistent with shock. They didn't remember mum and dad asking them how they were. They didn't remember people at school asking them how they were. Okay, um, with, a, with a few exceptions. But mostly it was just the sense of being completely alone. Now, Liz, if you've experienced grief, perhaps you can take your mind back to that time for yourself and, and remember that that is actually what initial grieving feels like. We cannot hear or feel that other people are trying to interact with us, interact with us. If I um if I understood your thesis correctly, what I thought was interesting was that um, children have much shorter capacity for this um, for grief, and it seemed to me, and I'll do an analogy. Possibly, a parent, an adult, might be able to, you know, lay in bed with a doona all day long you know, and be crying or, you know, that's a female. I know it's a, a stereotype of that. Whereas it seemed to me what you're saying is that children cannot do this alone grief work for long periods. All of a sudden a child might turn to play. And so do you think that's why parents sometimes might not understand or, or might not realize how difficult it is for their child? Definitely. Definitely. And I'm not trying to make parents, I'm not trying to make anybody feel, feel, 
Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a parent who is separated, but just recognizing that this fact that your child might be in the room and then playing, um, I guess that's the oscillation too you, you were talking about. Oh, absolutely. That's what I was referring to um, a little while ago. The um, That compounds the situation for us as parents looking at our children and not really being able to understand what we're witnessing. Okay, but there is this shutting down. That is the experience of anybody in that early phase of grief. So my advice to parents is to do lots of the checking in and to to understand that it is a time of shutting down, Liz, when that person, whether they're five years old or 10 years old or 16, they don't really have words for what they're feeling. and a younger child, yes, will appear to move very quickly out of it. So it becomes even more mysterious. But even if they weren't moving quickly out of it, they are shut down. Okay. It is the same as our early phase of grieving. And also what I found interesting, and I think it was particularly in this stage, is how siblings um, aren't necessarily finding much comfort in each other. They'll be separate in their experience and and not uh, and not supporting one another no no it was it really was quite interesting in that way um siblings of similar ages I also had the opportunity to have a, a set of twins ah in my study and they too that they're so it's like a siloing mm. okay and and that is grief all right, that is early grief. We feel alone. We feel completely alone. And part of that narrative that we have at those times and children demonstrated it, nobody understands and people are not asking me and they kind of can't reach me, all right? And that ties in again once again to this normalisation process. So then how... how so you support how how will you support a child's stage? Just checking in with them a lot, even though they might not be noticing it. Checking in with them. Absolutely. What what was profoundly comforting for children of all ages at that time was, as hard as it might sound, Liz, was to be back in the school environment where they felt more normal. And. In terms of my analysis, what that signified was them being forced to move out of a, a loss orientation state into a restoration state. Okay, so um, change of environments requires us to move between those two grieving states as per that model. And that's what school signified. And it was a very healthy thing for them because. They talked about feeling very normal at school, just being with their friends. Um, and these were primary aged kids, but you can also imagine, and in my clinical work I have experienced it, that teenagers would also feel that way. I just want to be with my mates. I don't want to think about the, the home stuff. So note for parents is don't keep them home. Send them to school. I also talked to parents about not not doing the breakup in the school holidays. 
in fact, do it during term time because it is normalising and supportive and comforting for children to be back in the routine of school and have that opportunity to flip out of grieving and into restoration. Okay, we need to move backwards and forwards because we can only grieve for so long. We need doses and school helps children with those doses. And also, too, I guess this is why you emphasize the importance um, of younger children um, of play. And I guess the older ones talking about the teenagers, you know, being with their mates. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, that's a really, really hard time for everybody. Um, Parents, you know. I think every parent I've met has really tried to be doing their best for their child. So it's a really hard time to go through for their parents as well. And so I think there'd be some relief for parents when you have the next stage, which is, um, I think, for two homes that used to be one. So this phase, um, would you talk to this phase about this for a bit? Yeah, this is this is quite a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> You're smiling, Liz, and I'm smiling. And um yeah, because I of the advice, because of the advice you can give, I, I think that you know that um, deconstructing this and you know being the voice for children is just so important. And with that, you know, with this information, even though it's a bit hard to read, I found it hard, challenging to read. It's these not understanding our child's situation and knowing how we can help them. You know, it's no point them sitting there in silence. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So these, the elements of the interviews that led to this analysis, yeah, this this was really, really hard to do as a researcher, I have to say. Um, what children talked about was this complete contradiction and conflict for them that firstly they had to get used to never spending time with both parents together. And it, this is almost at a cellular level. <laughs> we, as children, that is that is what they're expecting to do. This is what their norm is, that I, I can be with mummy and daddy together. And we, when, we, when I think of family, I think of us together. So that is the blueprint that most children have formed. Of course, today, Liz, we have many um, families who don't ex- get to experience that because we have fly in, fly out, okay? We have more complex relationships. But still, the blueprint that children hold is that ideal of being with mum and dad together. So one of the difficulties that children talked about was that two homes actually meant for them not being with mum and dad at the same time. And I had I had one little boy who who was quite profound in the way he put this forward to me. And he and he said to me at the first interview, I thought this was going to be fine. He said, I thought I'd just have two homes and that would be great. But now what I realize, and this was just six months later, is that it's very different. And what he was referring to was this compromised feeling of never being with both parents again okay so those those opportunities to be with both parents are often tainted because mum and dad might not be doing so well and they might be either openly hostile to one another 
or have very, very minimal interaction because it's too painful. So what children are sitting in between, if you hold that picture of a little child standing between mum and dad, what they're holding is a deep longing for the three of us to spend time together, but their reality is very, very different. They only get to be with one parent at a time and the times that the three come together, one are brief and two are often highly emotionally charged for the parents. And it's interesting. I know that um, your work didn't extend to was focused so was focused on heterosexual couples, but even you know, but for children who um, whose parents are of the same sex, they would still have the same model of family. Of would apply the same, I imagine. Definitely, it would be no different at all. And I and I work with a lot of same sex couples in my private practice. It is no different. No difference. So it is our blueprint that we bring to the world. And one of one of the theorists that I talk about in my um, in my thesis is a profoundly intelligent man, Parks, and he he talked about he developed this idea of assumptive world. And in terms of grief theory, what he brought us was an understanding that one of the things that happens when we experience a grief, a, a, a deep and profound grief that might be as a result of a family breakdown it might be as a result of the loss of a loved one or it might be through migration for example what we experience is a shattering of the beliefs that we held about the world and I take this that we've just been talking about this conflict over two homes for children as being one of those fundamental breaks with their assumptive world. They believed, their blueprint was me and my parents. Okay. And what Park said is that the breaking of these assumptions about the world is a profoundly hard experience for us when we grieve. And our restoration, our adjustment requires us to rebuild an understanding of the world. So to form new beliefs and assumptions about the way the world works. And that's essentially what children are grappling with there. Okay. But it is painful for them in the early parts of separation to only be with one parent at a time. This situation, this stage would obviously be particularly um, aggravated when um, there's a lot of animosity between the parents. It would, it would make that um, the loss of this assumptive world even more, more challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the, the fairy tale that we hold as, as part of that blueprint is it's a white picket fence and it's our parents holding hands happily in love. So it is highly challenging and children learn to adapt and respond to conflictual relationships in many ways. You know, there's, there's been lots of literature and research done about the way that children will respond to those things and, you know, some of the things they might start to do is um, lie to parents to protect one or other parent. They might align with one parent or against the other in order to protect that parent, okay? 
or they might tell both parents what both parents want to hear. Okay, so in these difficult family situations, children can be potentially quite unreliable because they will tell one parent one thing and the other parent the other thing. Do you like soccer? I love soccer. No, I don't like soccer. I like tennis. They will please both parents or align with one. Okay, and they do this out of their developmental understanding as the easiest way to cope with loving two people equally. It must be so difficult in your work as a child consultant when you see a child in a situation when these two, um, I don't want to say lies, but these two patterns of talk they're giving each parent when they come together in the room. You know, when, it, when a child is... Um, these horrible situations when children have to be interviewed and they come into the room and it's sort of, they're sort of, um, it's unmasked that they've been telling their, their parents different things. It must be so confronting for a child to be put through that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and usually there, there are so many indicators within the relationship of the parents that it's very easy to understand what's going on for the child, that the child is trying to protect a parent both parents and themselves. Any adult who's gone through uh, a separation, so many of these um, stages are, are quite similar. Um, the loss of the assumptive world, you know, people traditionally at the wedding, and they also imagine a future of the white picket fence and to be together and grow old together. But the amazing, the difficult challenge for children is that they don't have the the life experience, um, the vocabulary or external support to be able to process it. So once again, at this really difficult stage when they are um, living in separate homes and also possibly impacted by the new relationships, what can we as parents do to, to, to assist them? Yeah. I think as parents, it is about being child-focused, Liz, which is hard for us when we are grieving as adults. And I guess that's something that I'd like to just speak about for a moment when I've answered your question. Um, we need to be compassionate and we need to articulate that for children, articulate that this is different, this is not what you want. Uh, we understand it's not what you want. This is going to get easier. Okay, so that last sentence is a key phrase. I tell children who come through my therapy room that all the time. I say, I want you to remember it's going to get easier and easier. It's never going to be this hard again. Okay, children need that sense of hope. Mm -hmm. Okay, one, to be understood that this is hard. Two, this is not what you want. We all understand that. And three, it's going to get easier. So trying to express for them what they are feeling is really important. Absolutely. Empathising. And so the point I wanted to make, Liz, was that when we as adults are grieving and if we call on that dual process model to understand that, we too will be stuck in a loss orientation for long periods and move out into restoration orientation at times that we are required to go to work, required to 
get up and cook a meal, required to walk the dog, all of those everyday things actually save us. <laughs> the routines save us. They pull us out of grieving. But while we're in those periods of grieving, our capacity to be empathic towards our children really is compromised. And and I guess overall this is my this is the message I try to impart to families. You are compromised. Get help. Call in the village. You're not at your best. You can't you can't be who's doing all of this alone. And so many people, I think that's this, once again, is such an important aspect of this interview is just to realize by breaking it down, the challenges for children and what they're going through and the adults, it is, I am just amazed by the amount of people who try and do it alone, amazed and, 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 and so saddened for them because it makes it so much more difficult. Absolutely. And to go back to your first question, that is part of the risk of this becoming so commonplace that people will say, ah, you know, 300 other families get on with it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Well, we're not all fine, you know, and depending on our personal history with grief, with loss, our support system, we may well not be fine. So I think it's important that it is actually acknowledged that some people do need help to get through this and it's okay it's not it shouldn't be stigmatized that we need a bit of support in making sense of this and so when you um when you say to children you know uh, at that previous stage um you know this is the worst it'll be and it will be fine i don't say it will be fine i say it will get better this will be better easier that's such an important distinction that it will get better is that the time of this fourth stage my new normal absolutely absolutely so what i what i witnessed in the children that i interviewed was that there was just this shift that emotionally cognitively they suddenly were just a lot better equipped to be okay with all of the change that had taken place and this wasn't so much a, a fixed time on a timeline. So children approach that at different times depending on their personal journey. But generally, if, if we look and draw on the literature, we know it's been well established that the, the key adjustment phase is through that first year and by the end of that first year, most, emphasised most, children have come to terms with the change and have resumed normal levels of academic and emotional functioning. Okay. And my, my little group that I researched, they were consistent with that. It was the 12, 12 to 18 months mark post the separation, that most of them were saying, oh, it's okay, but there's a new partner in that house and that's okay. They were much more able to be accepting of changes and to be coping with those changes. 
What I noticed reading um, your thesis, and I hope that I've got this correct, is that even though um, they may have completed the separation process, they do still swing back. And so it's important to still be referring to the separation, still checking in with them. Is that right? Does that just go on for a very long time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, And th- there's more of a nuance to that, actually. So what I found was that overall the child might be coping, but there might still be some element of the adjustment that they were not quite coping with. So we can't use the umbrella term of coping which I think is what we do in everyday um, talk about and thinking about our children. So I think we have to think of numerous train tracks along the way where children are adjusting firstly to that fundamental idea that mum and dad aren't together anymore. They're adjusting to that. And then they're adjusting to other secondary elements of change, okay? I'm in a new neighbourhood. I may have had to shift schools. There's a new partner. In one of the houses, I don't see much of mum anymore. She travels a lot. So these are all parallel train tracks and children are having to form an an emotional adjustment to each of those elements. So they may not all hit target at the same time is what I'm trying to say, Liz. Okay, so... Um, when we make that statement of children are coping much better, it may not be across all elements of the adjustment, but by and large they're coping better, okay? But I think what you're referring to is that what we know developmentally is that children will revisit losses, okay, and they do this as a normal part of their grieving because Cognitively, their understanding of the loss shifts and changes as they develop further reasoning capacity as they are maturing, okay? So I have parents coming back to me three years after a separation saying, Johnny's been fine. I don't understand what this is about. And I will have to explain to them. This is Johnny just revisiting some element of that loss and this is completely normal. And this, to some extent, will go on through the rest of his um, child and adolescent development. So this swinging back to the past that children might do, is that something that adults are less likely to do, this swinging back? No, I think we we all do it, but as adults, perhaps it doesn't rock us to the same extent. So, you know, we, we can all relate to stories of, um, say, um, a child who lost their father at a young age. The day they graduate from high school and there's only one parent sitting in the audience, that is a day that they may have a very strong grief reaction again to the loss of their father. Yeah? The day that they come to the church and actually it's not their father who walks them down the aisle because he died when they were four. That again may catapult that person into a grieving 
response, okay? And they're not taken back to the full grief response, but there will be an element of reworking within the current context of life and who I am and my blueprint and my assumptive world, what I thought this was going to be like, okay? There is another smaller element of reworking. So I say to parents, expect reworking. And it doesn't mean that you haven't done a good job. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It just means you've got a sensitive child who is feeling this further adjustment to a sumptive world, to a loss. Okay, it's a normal, natural part. So parenting, um, if you ha- you know, if you're a, a parent of uh, separated your children, attunement then is important for separated parents as any parent bringing up children. That's right. And I think that's quite complicated. As a mother myself, Liz, mm. of three, three young women who are now adults, it's not easy. It's not easy to be always attuned to them. But it, I think it begs the need for constant conversation. Never assume. I think it is about just going one layer under and trying to seek an understanding of what's going on. But more than that, the willingness to get professional help. If you are mystified by what's going on but you witness that your child is going back into a period of of just not coping when they have been coping well, that's the time to check in with a trusted professional and and get a little bit of support. I'm just going to ask you two more questions because I know and you practice there um, at the Barden uh, Counseling Centre, which I'll refer to at the end of the interview. You'll have clients shortly after this. But my just my second last question is this: you know, if you had a magic wand or a, or a magic gavel, in what ways would you like you would like your work to be integrated into a other professionals in this field support children? Are there any particular aspects of your research that you think are very important to be integrated into um, the work of other professionals supporting children? Absolutely. I I think there is uh, a minimization of the need for the professions across the board, lawyers, mediators, judges, to be educated about what we're talking about. And I know that there has been a huge move through Australia since early 2000s, federally funded around, you know, educating lawyers and and the legal profession. I wonder if all mental health workers, you know, social workers, psychologists, I wonder if they all really across this aspect of children's grieving okay so how would I integrate it I would integrate it with lots more education opportunities and personally if the federal government ever asked me that question I would be saying we should be having compulsory education programs for parents post-separation compulsory across the board they do have a lot of control. There's that moment where you have to file your documents, for example. There's many, there's many moments along, along the way. Absolutely. And this is prominent in other countries, you know, 
states really set a beautiful example about this. And um, some states in America, they offer a children's psychoeducation with a parallel adult psychoeducation. And honestly, if I had a magic wand, I would make that compulsory across the board. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear what happens with the reforms in Australia that are going on at the moment in the family law system, and there's a real focus on children, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out in the next few months. Now, the very final bit is I want to read out the last sentence of your thesis, if you would have time, and just ask you a follow-up question. Is that okay? Right. Yes. Okay. Here's the quote. If one in four ch Australian children will experience either divorce or the permanent separation of their parents before the age of 16 years, supporting children to navigate this grief process is an issue that should continue to be a priority, not only for parents regarding the care of their children, but for policymakers and the community at large. So my question is this then, what suggestions would you have for those people who want to support the children in their life, who are going through their parent separation, but are not sure how. And here I'm talking about the grandchildren who are around the child, you know, one's nieces, one's nephews, you know, or the young children who just sort of pass through your home. What little yeah. suggestions could you make there? I would say be that adult, be that person you know that beautiful expression, it takes a village to raise a child. Be part of that village. Be the person who says, you know, we can organise a few more play dates. Keep the child connected. If, if you are a fellow parent, if you're a grandparent, be that grandparent who says, I know this must be hard for you. You know, you can tell me anything you need to just support them a little bit emotionally. What so many, in my experience, what so many people are scared of doing is naming the elephant in the room because you know what I might do? I might upset the child. Well, it's actually the reverse. And you are that adult who just touches in and says, how are you doing? I know it must be difficult for you. It is profoundly important for children to have those supports and in my little group of children I researched there was a very beautiful family um, who stand out in particular and those grandparents were so hands-on and they gave those children so many skills and so much support about just normalizing how they were feeling and being there okay I think all of us can contribute if we put aside our fear of naming the elephant in the room. That's really wonderful advice. Really wonderful advice there. Thank you so much, Sue, for sharing your knowledge and time today. I'm sure a number of listeners, many listeners will want to learn more. So I should mention that Dr. Suzanne Wickington can be contacted at the Barden Counseling Center in Brisbane. And I will post the contact de details on the show's Instagram account. Plus, um, I'm hoping to have a little chat with Sue after this interview or in the future for some recommendations of some resources that I could also post on the show's um, Instagram account. 
So again, thank you, Sue. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if something in the episode has motivated you, I recommend that before you take any action, you get professional advice because the conversations are general in nature and not based on your particular situation. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or if there's another topic you'd like explored. And if you know someone who might benefit from the show, remember to tell them about it or suggest my Instagram or website, www.theseparationfix.com. Good luck being your best self today. Just know I'm out there too, trying as well.